All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm honored to have Congressman Ron Paul with me today. A few years ago, Dr. Paul may have needed an introduction, but now, following his candidacy for the presidency, Ron needs no introduction. He is perhaps one of the top two or three well-known legislators on Capitol Hill. His run for the presidency certainly catapulted him into prominence in the hearts and minds of a growing number of Americans, but his legislative initiative to audit the Fed really made him popular with the people following the post-September 2008 bailout of powerful Wall Street interests. Ron Paul has been a hero of mine for many years because of his steadfast insistence that the framers of the Constitution meant what they said when they said money shall be comprised of gold and silver and that Congress must declare war before American troops are sent into harm's way. So it is a distinct honor to have with me Congressman Paul. Welcome again, Congressman Paul, to turning hard times into good times. Thank you, Jay. Good to be with you today. Well, it's, it's really super to have you, and I want to thank you. You were with us about a year ago or so when we launched this program, and, and in no uh, small measure the success of our program has been uh, at least partly uh, thanks to you. I'd like to begin by talking about economic bubbles. It seems to me that the word bubbles used to refer to unsustainable economic growth, but that's become much more prominent now than it was as recently as the 1970s and 1980s. We didn't hear the word bubbles. We didn't hear the, the economy uh, being referred to as a bubble economy. Do you recall a time? Do you recall that, that a time when we didn't refer constantly to the economy as a bubble economy? No, we're certainly doing that a lot more, although bubbles have been around. And I think where the confusion comes is uh, people think that economic growth represents a bubble, and that's not necessarily so. Mm-hmm. So it's it's rather a silly type of economics that says that when you have economic growth, that the that the solution for it is to cut, you know, uh, to have slower growth, purposely raise interest rates and slow the growth. Mm-hmm. And that means that kind of a bubble uh, is different than just economic growth. And the, what I think of as bubbles are, is the malinvestment, the overinvestment, and too much debt into the system when the Federal Reserve artificially pumps up the money supply and gives lower than market interest rates, and then you have a bubble economy. And certainly the best example of that would be the, the housing bubble. But the bubble's been around for a long time, but I'd agree they've certainly been talking about it a lot more recently because of the dramatic effect of the NASDAQ bubble and the housing bubble. Well, certainly when we talk bubbles, we're talking about unstable, unsustainable economic and in a, uh, economic environment is that right? So that, that when you, is absolutely right. So, so your malinvestment idea, an Austrian economic idea, 
that when you shovel huge amounts of money into the economy, it doesn't get allocated efficiently in a very efficient manner. And we saw that certainly with the dot-com bubble, the telecom bubbles, uh, then uh, more recently the housing bubble. Um, Well, the thing is that these bubbles seem to be something that mainstream Wall Street is really sort of expecting to occur now. They're not even expecting them not to occur. So last week on my show, I interviewed Dick Beauvais, a very well-known Wall Street analyst in the financial sector, and he thought that, you know, he didn't see any any danger of, I don't know how he would define a bubble, uh, probably not the same as you, but he doesn't see any any problem right at the moment in the U.S. economy, but he thinks it's inevitable that we're going to we're going to head into another bubble sometime in the not too distant future. Well, that's what they're hoping for, you know. Yeah. I think uh, when I when I interview or quiz Bernanke, I've uh, you know more or less accused him of saying you're just waiting for another bubble. That's your whole purpose. You want to inflate. You're struggling to do this, mm-hmm. but uh, because they've been able to do this for so long, I mean, there've been no restraints since 1971, and they've had ups and downs and bubbles, small re- small recessions and big recessions, and now probably a depression. But their only solution is to reinflate, which means to have a new bubble. And uh, it looks like this time. Uh, they're having a great deal of difficulty because, you know, when the NASDAQ bubble collapsed, uh, it was no, it was a big event uh, and significant, but they got the housing bubble going. And right now, though, uh, I, I think there's a bubble in, in the bond market. Uh, and I think there's, you know, the people still have a lot of money in the bond market, and there's a lot of confidence uh, uh, in the dollar and the bonds. But that, to me, is way out of proportion to uh, what, what it should be because uh, – who, who would, who would, uh, you know, judge that a ten-year bond is uh, somebody would buy that to save money for ten years? If you were saving money for your kids for school, nobody would, nobody would be buying a bond. So that's all artificial. So that has to be a bubble. But but the bubbles will eventually end. Fiat money doesn't last, and and then there'll be a, a, a need for and a, and a requirement that we have a new monetary system. You'd have to think buying a 10-year bond would be one of the stupidest things you could do right now because uh, even if you take the government's inflation numbers, uh, you're getting negative returns, are you not? Right, and what kind of interest rates are you getting? Zero, then you lose the purchasing power. I mean, uh, even in this uh, uh, flux, of, I mean, the dollar is not appreciating in value. I mean, if you, I think I saw a figure just recently where prices of food and from March of last year to March of this year went up 18%. So uh, prices, there's still some price pressure there. So putting your money away, and if you didn't have any taxes or any interest or anything, uh, if you put it in a shoebox, you know, most everybody knows that in 10 years uh, they're not going to have the same purchasing power. Well, you and I would believe that if if we attached the dollar to to an asset like gold or silver, that we wouldn't have these kinds of problems. The the framers of our Constitution were rather clear that money was to be comprised of gold and silver. Why has the use of paper money created out of thin air not been deemed unconstitutional many decades ago when Roosevelt took us off the gold standard? Can't our judges read? Really not, and uh, if if they do read, they read more into the Constitution than they want, but this has been, even before Roosevelt, this occurred under Lincoln, you know, for the Civil War period, uh, they went off the gold standard, and uh, they reneged on gold contracts. And But the, the courts have almost always ruled in favor of central banking and government's abuse of monetary policy. 
rather than the ruling in favor of the Constitution and the people and the value of the money. So um, this uh, this has been notorious, and uh, I think I think it's the pressure on them to defend the state. By the time people get to the top level in the executive branch, congressional branch, or judicial branch, they all believe in big government, and they don't know how to pay for it other than by printing money, and therefore they have to maintain uh, maintain that system at the expense of the people. Mm-hmm. So they're they're voting their own vested interest. They want to be returned to Congress. Is that is that the yeah? They uh, you know up until now that was you know an automatic. You vote uh, you vote your uh, district. You get money into your district. You get rewarded and you get returned. But now with the anger and resentment of the Tea Party people, they're saying enough is enough. We don't believe you anymore. It's not sustainable. So. Uh, those kind of promises don't work because uh, we've seen such, uh, you know, a disruption in the marketplace. So people have lost confidence in government, and in many ways that's very healthy because there's no reason for us to place confidence in in government uh, pro- providing for us forever. There's no way that these entitlements can be fulfilled. So, uh, the, but the people are catching on. Uh, well, I think the people understand that governments don't create wealth. People create wealth. Freedom free enterprise, hard work, labor, intelligence, uh, incentives for people to do that create create wealth. And certainly our founders understood that, um, uh, that we needed to have a sound monetary base. Uh, and they understood that, we would, that our economy would suffer if that wasn't the case. They also understood that our freedoms would be destroyed. Uh, but not only our founders understood that, none other than Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, clearly understood that fiat money would result in the loss of our economic freedom. We know that from an exchange that you had with the former chairman after a House banking meeting sometime back in 2001. As I recall, Greenspan told you uh, in 2001 that he still believed what he wrote in a 1966 article called um, uh, titled Golden Economic Freedom. Essentially, he admitted that without a gold standard, there is no way for individuals to retain ownership of their private property and to retain their economic freedom. Of course, Greenspan then went uh, went out and engaged in what I think you and I would both agree was one of the most uh, egregious and destructive acts against average American people in modern history when he pumped huge amounts of money into the economy, creating not one bubble but the two that we just spoke about. Now, Dick Beauvais, who I interviewed last week, I think hit the nail on the head when he told me that targeting Goldman Sachs, as the president seems to be doing now and, and many in Washington, uh, that that's really misplaced. Uh, the real culprit, and I was pleasantly surprised to hear Dick say this, the real culprit, according to him, even this mainstream analyst, Dick Beauvais, was that it was the excessive amount of money that was created by during the Greenspan Fed and, and subsequent to him as well. Do you feel that the anger against Goldman Sachs is misplaced? Partially, and because I want all the, you know, m- most of the direction be at, uh, at the Federal Reserve because they create the credit. But the reason I say partly is the Fed exists to have take care of their friends with the big banks and companies like Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. So um, for some reason, I think that uh, uh, a lot of this attack on Goldman Sachs won't amount to much. I still mm-hmm. think they are a favorite of the administration and the favorite of, of the central bank, and they'll be taken care of. But I, I think politically speaking, they had to do something because there's been enough written and understood you know, about uh, how, how Goldman Sachs have benefited and has escaped it. But, uh, no, I, uh, I spend most of my time trying to get people to concentrate 
on the cause of our problem. And to me, it's it's big government financed by a central bank and a central bank that's out of control, can monetize all debt and make all kinds of deals around the world and not be not even be susceptible to an audit by the Congress. No, no oversight whatsoever. So that's why, of course, I've worked hard on trying to get an audit of the Fed, and we're still working pretty hard on that project. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that project, uh, there was a vote on the floor. Where, where did that bill go, and did you end up supporting it? was a bill that you introduced, I believe, and did you end up supporting it, or was it watered down to such an effect? On, on the auditing the Fed? Yes. Um, in, the, in the Financial Service Committee, I offered my bill to have a clean audit of the Federal Reserve and offered it uh, to the financial reform bill, which is an atrocious bill, but it was the only thing available to me because Barney Frank wouldn't bring it up to the floor as a clean bill, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have uh, done as well. So when that got put in the banking committee, it was brought to the floor, and we did pass it on the House floor. But because most of the bill was terrible, I voted and ended up actually voting against the bill that had my amendment in it. But the key vote was in the Financial Services Committee when we got it put on the financial reform bill. But as of as we speak, they are dealing with this in the Senate, and Barn, uh, Bernie Sanders as well as Jim DeMatt is trying to put it in the Senate uh, financial reform package. But once again, if that gets passed, ironically, it'll be on a bill that most of us who want the audit won't even be able to support. Mm. But sometimes things work out that way in, in Washington. Well, I guess they work out that way very often, don't they? Well, the Federal Reserve is a private corporation, is it not? They're they're unique in that they're not a government corporation and they're not susceptible to any audits, but they're not private in the sense that somebody just popped up and created the Fed. The Fed was created uh, by by Congress, and they could uh, undo it. They could take their charter away from them. But they're private in the sense that they're secret and private individuals run it and we're not allowed to know about it, and, and the stock is owned by private individuals. So it's it's probably unique in in the, all of what we do. It's neither a conventional private corporation nor is it a government agency. So do we know who owns the stock of the Federal Reserve? I think you can find that out. It's the stockholders of the various members, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, they are, there are lists of those individuals, and they mm-hmm. do get – uh, paid some dividends. I think the bigger concern that I have is the uh, manipulation of money and credit, and uh, and and to monetize debt and to loan money to banks that uh, nobody knows about. The Fed creating two trillion dollars and 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 loaning this money out, and we're not allowed to know. That's a much bigger deal than the amount of interest that is paying to the people who hold the stock. Mm-hmm. But might the but might not the shareholders also, um, you know, have some influence on what the Fed does and how they spread their money around? And I, and I know you also expressed some concern about the American people ultimately being asked to bail out Greece. Greece is very much in the news now. Obviously, clearly the bailouts that are being proposed are not are not working as far as the markets are concerned. But do you see that as a you know the ownership of the Fed being a, being a problem in that it they might have some influence on? on well, not. The- not the average owner. If they're a small bank someplace and they have a little bit of stock, I don't think so. But if you go to to the large New York banks and the very big banks, uh, yes, I think uh, they're very much involved in knowing what the mm-hmm. Fed is going to do. Uh, the people in, in, in Greece, you know, I asked uh, Bernanke about this, and he uh, he said that, uh, well, he he more or less 
wanted me to believe that they had no interest, no part, and they aren't doing anything and won't do anything. But mm-hmm. it was just a few days later that, uh, you know, the IMF package was announced, and, and uh, they needed more money from us. Uh, the, the IMF is looking for, a, like, $500 billion from us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we pay 25% of the IMF funding, mm-hmm. so therefore we are bailing out. Agree. Sure, you indirectly. Know, yeah, in, indirectly. And those are the kind of agreements uh, that uh, the Federal Reserve can get involved in, even outside of what we know the IMF is doing. Outside of that, the uh, the Fed can have secret agreements with central banks and other foreign governments. They are they are under the law permitted to do this, and the law prohibits an audit of the Fed. Uh, that is the reason that mm-hmm. we need to rein them in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you have advocated eliminating the Federal Reserve as well in the past and returning, I guess, you would like to return to a gold standard, silver standard, some sort of commodity-backed monetary system. But you yourself have acknowledged that we could not immediately eliminate uh, this sort of monetary system that we have. I know you have given considerable thought to this question, so can you tell our listeners how you think we could go about uh, returning to a sound monetary system? Well, the first thing is is we need to know more about it, and that's why I started with audit and the Fed to find out exactly what what they're doing so that the mm-hmm. people can be behind uh, the reform. Um, but you could have legislation that would limit the amount of uh, of debt they could monetize and restrict them. But my my uh, real transition uh, is by is done by legalizing competition with the fed mm-hmm. and that that is allow people to use uh american legal tenders silver mm-hmm. and gold coins mm-hmm. you know at face value and let people get in the contracts uh today if you do that uh you could actually uh, get into big trouble with the irs if you start using anything other than federal reserve notes uh, uh, you know, for money. So you and I have a bill, and it's a competing currency bill where we repeal the legal tender laws and make gold and silver uh, uh, permissible to be used, and take off taxes, no sales taxes or capital gain taxes on gold coins. Otherwise, it wouldn't be money. I mean, they don't mm-hmm. tax Federal Reserve notes, so I don't want right. To. And so then it could compete, and people who aren't too worried, they can keep using Federal Reserve notes. But if you and I wanted to have an agreement uh, mm-hmm. and, and 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 deal in in gold money, uh, we could do that, and uh, uh, that to me would uh, be an easier way than if you just turned the keys and locked the doors and said the Fed is closed. That would be rather chaotic right now. Mm-hmm. But if we don't do anything, it's going to be very chaotic if you have a currency crisis, which is what I anticipate. Sure. Do you think the taxes then are kept in place in part to keep this competition from occurring? Yeah, probably. I mean, certainly the way the laws are written, the laws are very, very strong. The laws prohibit the use of uh, of legal tender. Now, that's the strongest because uh, one group – a couple of years ago, they used silver coins and encouraged people to use it, and they actually called these silver coins dollars. And that's when, you know, they were raided, and they millions of dollars of coin, gold, and silver coins were taken by the Federal Reserve uh, because they were trying to compete with the Fed. It seems like a most basic human right to be able to one person to another exchange goods and services, but in fact, that's what they're prohibiting. You have also been an advocate of repealing the income tax, and when I mention that to my friends, they always ask, but what would replace it? So I ask you, what would replace it? Well, I was asked that in a national debate one time, and I said, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and I always like to get – I get a pretty good response at, uh, at, at our rallies that uh, I want to respond it with – you know, replace it with nothing. 
No, what I want to do, though, is reduce the size and scope of government. Uh, if we got rid of the income tax today there'd be and, and didn't cut any spending, the deficit would go up. Uh, but I want to cut, cut spending and get the government back to the size that it was prior to 1913. I mean, we, we existed for a hundred and some years without an income tax. Uh, what, what makes it uh, mandatory that we continue to do that other than the spending? But that, that gets you to the, the real problem, and that is uh, what should the role of government be? Mm-hmm. And the people, the majority of the American people, obviously still believe that the role of our government is to police the world and take care of us in a welfare manner from cradle to grave. And if, mm-hmm. if if the people maintain that we should be doing that, you're going to have all kinds of taxes. They're talking about a, a sales tax in addition, you know, mm-hmm. to to the income tax. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, we're in a period of time where there's a bit of rebellion going on because the people who have to pay are sick and tired of it, and the government isn't very good in fulfilling their promises. So uh, I think we live in very very interesting times where status quo is being challenged. Well, I think that's indeed true. We uh, we see the Tea Party movement, which which you referred to. I would also like to ask you about a Rasmussen poll that recently came out that I think also suggests that um, that people are starting to get fed up with what's going on. This Rasmussen poll, I think, had I think the question was who would you who would you like to see as the next president of the United States? Um, and I think it was something like 43% said Obama and 42% said Ron Paul. No other Republican was in double figures, and that that to me was sort of shocking. What do you make of that? It was sort of shocking to me too. It was a, <laughs> it was a surprise, and and I guess it will have to be duplicated before anybody really gets too excited about something like that. Yeah. I think it's uh, I think it's interesting, and but I also think that uh, see they were comparing other Republicans with Obama. Mm-hmm. If they compare me with other Republicans, I don't do quite so well. I that see. poll showed that I was not doing as well with Republicans as some others were doing, but I was doing much better than the rest of Republicans and the, and Obama with the independents. And even uh, with Democrats, I was able to uh, whittle away at the Democrat vote better than any other Republican, which is shouldn't surprise us because, you know, the concept of liberty has an appeal across the board mm-hmm. uh, because liberals tend to have a, a less aggressive foreign policy and a little more protection of civil liberties, and conservatives are a bit better on protecting the free market and, and the low property rights position. So mm-hmm. uh, it would be natural for you to say, well, yeah, and that's to me what's so exciting about the freedom philosophy. It really does bring people together, and it, and it appeals to everybody across the board. It, but it's almost the opposite of being a moderate. A moderate tries to gain access across the board by – uh, you know, being conservative by voting all the military stuff hmm. and the aggressiveness and also maybe being tough on civil liberties, not uh, protective mm-hmm. of civil liberties. And then they would also want to be more liberal by voting for the welfare program. So they bring their coalitions together, almost opposite of what somebody does if they believe in a freedom philosophy. Mm-hmm. We only have a few more minutes left, and there's so much more, as always, to ask you. Uh, but there is a movement, definitely the Tea Party movement. Uh, there are a lot of people who are calling themselves Ron Paul Republicans these days who are running for office. I had uh, a person on the show here with me uh, not long ago who's running uh, in the primaries in uh, New Jersey, um, uh, Dave, David Corsi. He's a real estate professional, and uh, you know he's hoping to win out against a – 
uh, a Wall Street Republican, and if he does, I think he has a very, very good chance of becoming uh, be, being elected to Congress. But he dubs himself a Ron Paul Republican. Uh-huh. It's uh, it's really very interesting, uh, Ron. I can just you know can just remember the time when. Uh, when hardly anybody knew your name, I remember talking to you in San Francisco and people passed you by and didn't know who you were almost. So uh, I'm really very, very pleased that things are going so well uh, that, that I think you have have contributed to a revolution. I think it's a revolution that is natural in, in the hearts and minds of people who want to be free, who want to be creative and productive. So I'm, I'm very, very pleased with, with what I've seen uh, happen since I first met up with you uh, many years ago. Um, Let's just see if we have another minute or two. Uh, you've written the book about a book about a revolution. Do you are you ever concerned about your safety? No, I mean I, I worry uh, about my safety when I get in a car and I watch carefully and try to drive very safely. Yeah. But uh, the rest, uh, I think I'm going to leave that in the hands of uh, somebody else. <laughs> okay, leave it in the hands of, of our creator, perhaps. Right. Um, well, I appreciate that very much, uh, Ron. Before we leave, can you tell people how they can follow you? Uh, I think it's housegov forward slash Paul. Is that the yeah, that's that's one. But the easiest way to remember to get hold of me is go to ronpaul.org because mm-hmm. that will list six web pages. I have mm-hmm. congressional web page, educational free foundation, the campaign, and the campaign for liberty, which is mm-hmm. the organization which is outgrowth of the presidential campaign. But ronpaul.org could get you just about anything you need. And probably from there, people can watch any number of YouTube interviews uh, as well uh, that I enjoy from time to time as well. <laughs> Well, thank you, Ron, uh, for taking time to talk with us on turning hard times into good times. Best wishes to you and your family and to your ongoing crusade for a return to the U.S. Constitution. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
at miningstocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Back to turning hard times into good times. I am your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really, really pleased to have with me for a second or third time Congressman Ron Paul. He needs no introduction, that's for sure, uh, and the time he has to spend with us is so limited. So we're going to jump right into a couple of questions I have for the Congressman. Congressman Paul, welcome again to turning hard times into good times. Thank you, Jay. Good to be with you. Well, it's always great to hear your voice, uh, whether it's on CNBC and increasingly on those larger. Mainstream channels, I'm so pleased to know uh, that people are paying some attention to what you're saying and your uh, popularity has grown very dramatically since you, uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, I want to jump right into um, an issue. I believe the, the, the Bloomberg lawsuit uh, that was uh, challenging the Fed to tell the American people where they sent a couple of trillion dollars. And it's my understanding that now the courts have ruled in favor of Bloomberg uh, requiring the Federal Reserve to disclose what they did with that uh, that bailout money or the money that they pumped into the system after the Lehman Brothers uh, failure, what can you tell us about that, if anything? Well, I wish I could tell you a lot and, told, and tell you exactly what's in it, but that, I, I can't remember the exact number. But it's something like twenty-nine thousand pages, these spreadsheets, and it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to uh, analyze everything. But that, of course, was on purpose. They figured they'd make it as confusing as possible. But they did con, uh, conform to the law. The uh, courts ruled that they, under the Freedom of Information Act they had to reveal this information. It's a bit ironic and, and a little sad that government, somebody like myself who has some responsibility, uh, we did not achieve this even though that's what we worked on, you know, auditing the Fed. We had a little bit of achievement last year. But a private source using the Freedom of Information Act was able to file suit and get that. So both Fox and Bloomberg deserve some credit uh, for doing this, and, and I haven't been bashful about saying that. But now the information is released to the public. We are analyzing it here. I hope to have hearings by May on this subject after we analyze it to find out what it means and why they did it and what they have excluded and this sort of thing. So, uh, But I think the initial in, uh, information, I would say that even surprised me is it, the magnitude, you know, into the trillions of dollars, exact number, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it, foreign banks were a big beneficiary. So mm -hmm. I guess that confirms that we're in a global economy now. You know, we must be 
we must and, and we do know that because the dollars reserve standard we are the central bank of the world mm-hmm. which of course is being challenged right now but we were the fed was really involved in bailing out a lot of foreign banks mm-hmm. well you were actually uh, suggesting that and and questioning that whether or not the money wasn't going to to bail out foreign banks too as i recall right and uh and, and there were some obvious reasons that they didn't want us to know, and I'll bet when we go through this, we're going to find, you know, some corporations that benefited, and 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 uh, there probably will be a pattern on who who are the good guys in the banking industries and who are the bad ones, you know, uh, Lehman Brothers versus uh, Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, obviously, there's a lot of dirty laundry that a lot of people probably don't want to have uh, viewed in public. What uh, so the impact of this then, Congressman Paul, is that they're 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 creating trillions of dollars out of nothing, showering it out, basically bailing out the wealthy banking interests. Would you see it that way? There's no doubt about it, and I think that's what we all suspected. The American people are waking up to this, and uh, I, I find it fascinating that uh, we have achieved a whole lot, although we don't know everything, and we we haven't reined in the Fed. But the exposure is very healthy for us to find out how a cartel, a private institution like the Fed, are able to uh, uh, to do these things with creation of money and bailing out their friends. But I I just think it's it's fantastic that uh, the American people are interested in this now, mm-hmm. and that uh, I think this is uh, you know real important for the day when we have to come up with some reform. So um, this is something the Fed resisted. Uh, the pressure, the public pressure has been great. We see, you know, it's interesting to see that the Fed chairman says, oh, well, maybe these people, we have to pander a little bit more, so we're going to have press conferences and tell them what to do. Somebody asked me the other day what I thought of that, and I said, spin. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it'll, that's... It'll, be, it'll be spin. You know, they do that in foreign policy. They have these top-secret briefings about why we're going into Libya. I don't even bother going because all you hear is, is the administration spin? So I'm sure uh, the Fed's involved in a lot of spin, but they've been getting away with it more than they deserve. But from now on, I think people are going to be very skeptical about the Fed. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about spin, here's a spin that I think has been going on for a long, long time, Congressman Paul, and that is that there's no connection between the creation of money and inflation. And I believe your uh, recent hearing was focusing on that uh, issue, trying to point out. I think that you were, you were, and I haven't had the time to fully appreciate and listen to it, but I believe you were trying to help educate the American people against this spin, uh, helping them to understand the connection between these Federal Reserve actions of creation and creating endless amounts of money, and the perhaps what they're paying to drive their cars or put food on their table. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first hearing we had was the relationship of the Fed to unemployment because they have two mandates, stable prices and full employment. Well, we did the first one on unemployment and the business cycle to show that, you know, that they are very, very responsible for these problems. Uh, taxes and regulations are also responsible, but the Fed, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, as the manufacturer of the financial bubbles, uh, you know, the chief uh, uh, instigator there. So the next one we did was have on prices because, you know, Bernanke is always denying it and the liberals always deny it. Uh, prices are going up because of speculators and profiteers and mm-hmm. the weather and on and on, but it's never, it's, it's never the Fed. And uh, Mises actually in his writings always warned that this is very important 
because they don't want you to think about it. They will always come up with alternative uh, reasons why you have price inflation. Mm-hmm. No, we had a, I think we had a great hearing, hearing and documented this, and now we've set the stage. We've looked at the business cycle with, with regards to labor and now rising prices, but we are going to hone in now as this information is coming out the, uh, on the Fed. And this is still partial information. The audit the Fed bill is uh, still – uh, being uh, worked on, you know, we hope that we get a full audit of the Fed, mm-hmm. but uh, we uh, at least got the attention of a lot of people. Well, certainly if the American people start to make the connection between their pockets being picked, their their lower living standards, the ability to put food on their table uh, and, and drive their cars and do the things they have to do, if they make the connection between these bailouts of these large banks and people can start to see that, I think people are going to be angry as heck, and I think there's going to be a chance that we can make things better. Yeah. You know, the, in t- talking about spin, you know, the Fed saved us. They saved us from the <laughs> Depression. They yeah. saved us from, you know, all, all these events. But I, I think if we use terms like uh, debasement, why, mm-hmm. why is it good to take a value away from your savings? Why should somebody debase your currency? I think that's a powerful term, but of course they say no. We're just uh, we're just the lender of last resort. You know that sounds like we're saving everybody yes. instead of destroying something. And of course, uh, I'm sure the people in your audience knows that uh, the Fed creation of money does not create wealth. It undermines the creation of wealth and. Uh, Yet the, the argument of the Keynesians, as well as many in this in, in this city of D.C., believe that oh, you know, we can't exist without the Fed. <laughs> you know that yeah. they are the ones who can create wealth, and and they get all the credit for the good times, and then they get credit in the bad times because they get us out of the bad times. Yeah. That's the, the conventional wisdom. Yeah. But this go around, uh, I don't think they're getting a lot of credit because they're not getting us out of the bad times very easily, and I suspect they're going to times are going to get worse rather than better here in the next uh, year or two. Well, they're certainly not uh, getting a lot of credit for it. And then you hear the likes of a Bill Gross who was on Bloomberg uh, in New York um, just the other day, and and Bill was talking about uh, something that's been a pet peeve of yours for many, many years, how savers are being penalized with these low interest rates, these contrived, manipulated low interest rates. And so they're really – and Gross is understanding that in order – for an economy to grow, you have to have savings. You can't just print money and dis- disincentivate people from saving, essentially. And the, I mean, the older folks that have saved and worked so hard all their lives are now finding that they're not getting they're not they're not getting anything for their savings. And moreover, here's another issue that I don't know. I know you're going to have to go pretty soon. But one of the things it seems to me that we are not uh, the the CPI, the in, the, uh, the the inflation that the government reports is certainly it seems to me from the work of John Williams and others very very understated. And they're not then of course increasing Social Security along the lines of what the real cost of living uh, is. Is that is that your take as well? Oh oh a- absolutely. Um, and uh, as John Williams does, he calculates the old method of the CPI, mm-hmm. and it's probably twice as high or even more than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's done for several reasons, to deceive the people, to make them feel better. And, and then, then they convince the markets, that, uh, you know, that at least the stock market, to respond and think only about the core rate and forget about food and, right. food and energy. But ultimately, they can't, they can't fool the market. And uh, they can't feel uh, fool the state savers forever. 
that is that is really the problem. I think it's like putting a monkey wrench in the whole machinery of capitalism. If you distort the interest rates and then people don't save and they substitute savings with uh, creation of new money, and then you get the inflation that just goes on and on. So, um, and, and, you know, we have our progressives who challenge us on this, and they said, see, capitalism doesn't work. Those free markets, this is what, you know, this yeah. is what it does to us. And that's why it's, it's such a uh, responsibility for us to show that, you know, capitalism and free markets are quite a bit different than crony capitalism and, right. and this inflationary monetary system where the banks are privileged and they, they get to participate in the, in, in the fraud so there, there's a big, big difference, and uh, I think we have to constantly make that point. Well, we're labeling it free market economics, and there's nothing like that existing. Of course, never in, in purity, probably ever in history of man, but we, we certainly have fallen away from it to a great extent. I think you would agree with that. Yeah, and I don't even think uh, we are giving good lip service, and we certainly don't have a good understanding of it. Uh, because if you talk about, you know, even when we had more free markets and, and money that was even sounder, people refer that to those days as the old bad old days. Yeah. And because they don't, uh, you know, un understand uh, where the real growth came from and what has happened in the past 10 years. See, this, this crisis we're in now, I sort of date, date things really getting bad in the year 2000, you know, with the bubble, the Nasdaq yeah. bubble collapsing. And, you know, the good jobs left and real growth and, and uh, standard of living, that's all been, all been uh, dropping. And at the same time, then we had this additional uh, housing bubble collapse, and uh, I think there will be a few more. But the, the real problem uh, from, from this type of policy, the policies that we're following, is that the standard of living is going to go down, is going down. Mm -hmm. If we don't change our ways, it's going to go down a lot more. Mm -hmm. And uh, th this is why our task is to at least present our views to the people so that they believe it's in their best interest. If they want a high standard of living, if they want poor people to have jobs and be able to take care of themselves, they can't do it with debt and borrowing and inflating the currency. Uh, that's a failed policy. Yet, they haven't given up yet. You can see the Fed and the Congress doing it constantly. Well, you're you're all about educating people along these lines, uh, Congressman Paul, and I appreciate it so much. I think you made tremendous progress uh, when you were a presidential candidate. Uh, is that in the cards again? <laughs> well, there's a lot of thought about it, and a lot of people ask me about it, and I have not decided. Um, but uh, probably I will have to in the next month or two. Uh, the time is moving along rather rapidly. At this time, four years ago, you know, the, the many candidates that were involved in, in, in the early part of '07. Here we are, almost to the, you know, middle of uh, of '011. Right. So I'll ha I'll have to do it soon. And there's a lot of good arguments for it, and there's a lot of uh, reasons why. Uh, I should move cautiously. <laughs> well, I, I know I had a conversation at dinner with somebody who knows you, Dwight Carey, uh, last evening, and, and his thoughts is for your own personal being, maybe he wishes you wouldn't, but of course <laughs> Dwight is very much in favor of, of uh, the educational process that, you're, that you have been so effective with, and I, it certainly was a platform for that. So, you know, uh, I, I just hope you do what, what you know is best for you and your family, but also for the country, and I know that yeah. that's what you are concerned about. You have been... 
as principled as anybody on the face of the earth in terms of your your values and your consistency, and that's what I think has won respect for you on both sides of the aisle. Congressman Paul, we are out of time. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion this time. Uh, no, but just to add maybe that uh, I was pleasantly surprised at the reception we got, uh, you know, last go-around. Yeah. And, and uh, I mentioned quite frequently that our newer generation, our younger generation, including your son, they're interested and they're understanding it, and maybe we can raise our kids to do a much better job than our generation has to restore our liberties. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Congressman Paul, for being with us again. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. What are the reasons that over three-quarters of small businesses fail within three years? Why do 70% of U.S. women-owned businesses make less than $50,000 a year? What causes mid-sized companies to stagnate? Although today many fundamentals of business remain the same, there are critical current changes that are not being acknowledged, and the result is costly. Tune in to Moving Forward with host Jen Sabin. We'll discuss the core reasons and plans of action to keep your business moving forward. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I had a question prepared, but I think I'd better follow up on the question you asked, uh, uh, Chairman Bernanke, dealing with the audit of the Fed. Uh, because when, when the Fed talks about independence, what they're really talking about is, is uh, secrecy, not, uh, uh, not transparency. And it's the secrecy that I don't like and that we have a right to know about. What the, what the GAO uh, cannot audit, and, uh, and I believe it would be the position of the chairman, is it cannot audit monetary policy, and you expressed yourself on monetary policy, 
that would not be able to look at agreements and operations with foreign central banks and governments and other banks, or transactions made under the direction of the FOMC, discussions or communications between the board and the Federal Reserve System related to all those items. <clears throat> so it really, it's, uh, it's, it's really not an audit with, without this. It's still secrecy. And why this is important is because of what happened four years ago. Uh, it's estimated that the amount of money that went in and out of the Fed for the bailing out uh, uh, overseas was $15 trillion. Well, how did we ever get into this situation where Congress has nothing to say about trillions and trillions of dollars of bailing out certain banks and governments through these currency swaps? And the chairman has publicly announced that he's available. There's a crisis going on in Europe. Part of this dollar crisis going on that's been building. It's unique to the history of the world and monetary policy. And we stand ready. Who stands ready? The American taxpayer, because we're just going to print up the money. As long as they take our dollars, we'll print the money and we'll bail them all out and we're going to destroy the middle class. The middle class is shrinking. The banks get richer. The middle class gets shrinking. They shrink. They lose their houses, they lose their mortgages. This system is biased against the middle class and the poor. So I would say that this is, uh, if, if we protect this amount of secrecy, it is not good policy and it's not good, uh, uh, good economics at all. It's very unfair. But my question is, Mr. Chairman, uh, whose responsibility is it under the Constitution to manage monetary policy? What, uh, which branch of government has the absolute authority to manage monetary policy? The Congress has the authority and it's delegated to the Federal Reserve as a policy decision that you make. Yeah, but they can't transfer authority. Um, you can't amend the Constitution by just saying we're going to create some secret group of individuals and banks. That's amending the Constitution. You can't do that and all of a sudden allow this to exist in secrecy. And whose, whose responsibility is it uh, uh, for uh, oversight? Which branch of government has, a, has the right of oversight? Congress has the right of oversight, and we certainly fully accept that, and, are, and, I, and we fully accept the need for transparency and accountability. Um, but it is a, uh, a well-established fact that an independent central bank will provide better uh, outcomes um, if you want to go, uh, there's no constitutional reason why you couldn't, why Congress couldn't just take over monetary policy. Um, if you want to do that, I guess that's your right to do it, but I'm advising you that it wouldn't be very good from an economic policy point of view. Yeah, but if, if it's allowed to be done in secret, this is the reason why I want to work within the system. What I want to say is Congress ought to get a backbone. They ought to say we deserve to know, we have a right to know, we have an obligation to know because we have an obligation to defend our currency. It's the destruction of the currency that des des destroys the middle class. There is a principle of free market banking that says if you destroy the value of currency through inflation, you transfer the wealth to the middle class and it gravitates to the very wealthy. The bankers, the government, the politicians, they all love this. It is, it is the fact that the Federal Reserve is the facilitator that you couldn't have big government. If everybody loves big government, love the Fed. Because they can finance the wars and all the welfare you want, but it doesn't work. It eventually ends up in a crisis. And it's a solvency crisis, and it can't be solved by printing a whole lot of money. So I think the very first step is transparency. And for us to know, we have a right to know, and you may be correct in your assumption, at least I'm sure you believe this, but maybe I should be talking to Congress. 
that we should stand up and say, yes, we demand to know. Trillions and trillions of dollars being printed out of thin air and bailing out their friends. They stand ready to do it. The crisis is just, in, as far as I'm concerned, my opinion is it's in the early stages. It's far from over. We're in deep doldrums, and we've never changed policy. We never challenge anything. We just keep doing the same thing. Congress keeps spending the money. Welfare expands exponentially. Wars never end. And deficits don't matter. And when it comes to cutting spending, Republicans and Democrats get together and say, oh, no, we, we can't really cut. And if we do cut, we just have proposed increases. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. We've listened to Ed Griffin tell us about the creation of the Federal Reserve, also known as the creature from Jekyll Island, and how that was used to consolidate power and wealth by the ruling elite. Ron Paul talked about how the Fed is the enabler of the destruction of our country from a democratic republic to a fascist economic system that is taking on the characteristics more and more every day of a dictatorship. The middle class is being destroyed by fiat money, and as Alan Greenspan wrote in his 1966 paper called Gold and Economic Freedom, the government and the Fed do not want people opting out of fiat money into gold because that would hinder the game of legalized theft that the Fed and the U.S. government is engaged in. So it should come as no surprise then that all manner of manipulation of the gold price and propaganda against gold is being orchestrated by the government, the Federal Reserve, and the mainstream media. Next week, Chris Powell of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, that's a civil rights organization, will join me to talk about the latest efforts on the part of the ruling elite to manipulate the gold price and to keep Americans conned into accepting the fraudulent paper dollar as money. I hope you will join me for this very important discussion. In closing, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable, and I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.